Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. When the pandemic struck, a lot of things were canceled. All kinds of trips, business trips, conferences, school trips, volunteer expeditions, and of course, family vacations were all canceled or delayed. All kinds of performances were also canceled, including the twice annual storytelling events put on by Investigate Midwest, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting. Thankfully, storytelling is back. On November 3rd, we gathered at the Graduate Hotel in Iowa City for an evening of true stories told in front of a live audience. The theme, A Trip I'll Never Forget. We will hear from an adventurer who took a major detour when he set out to hitchhike to Alaska, a journalist who recently got back from Nepal, and a couple who expanded their family from six to eight after a trip to Haiti. But first, James Stordahl, an author, actor, and speaker who lives in Ankeny. Okay, thanks uh, very much. Uh, my name is Jim Stordahl, and I'm originally from Minnesota. And uh, I came down here in 1987, before some of you were born. And it's one of those things about, I thought I was going to be here for five years. And 33 years later, and seven four daughters, seven grandchildren, uh, here we are. And my four daughters are all Iowa fans, so if we can get a few points for that part. I uh, was born and raised in a little town called Medelia, which is southwest uh, Minnesota, and a small farming community, about 1,500. That's where I was value programmed. I mean, we learned everything with our class of 58 kids, and uh, except for the dating aspect. I mean, you couldn't really, you know, date or get serious about the same girl that you didn't want to hold hands with during physical education class dancing. So we'd go out of town, a lot of a couple of us boys, and we'd go out go north to New Ulm, Minnesota, home of George's Ballroom. Uh, maybe some of you recall uh, Fez Fritchie and the Six Fat Dutchman. Uh, no? <laughs> well, the socializing was really great, and I did have somewhat of a gift of gab from my traveling salesman dad, and a relationship did develop, and uh, I followed her on up to the University of Minnesota back in the 70s. After the relationship uh, went to heck in a handbasket, can I say heck? Okay. (laughs) Uh, We uh, decided in a cold winter day that we were going to go to spring break. Now, from a small farming community in, in Minnesota, we didn't know what spring break was. We knew about spring planting. Uh, we knew about uh, raising cattle, pigs, and sheep. But what is this spring break? It's got to be a big town, big college kind of an environment. Well, when we got up to the University of Minnesota, we found out that spring break held all these great ideas. So. We decided to get ourselves uh, transportation to go down to 
Florida. We chose Florida just by sheer luck because two people wanted to go watch the Daytona Speedway races. Well, they don't have Speedway races uh, during spring break. So anyway, we got down there. We're in a white panel van, no windows at all. So now how creepy is this? You got five guys that are really anxious to see all the sights, but they're all plastered against the front window. Think of how strange that was when we got down to Daytona Beach. Here's these five knuckleheads from Minnesota looking around, and the white panel van probably brings an image to all of your minds. Isn't that used in all the horror movies? Isn't that where Silence of the Lambs started in the white panel van? I mean, it was creepy, but anyway, it was cheap transportation. We had gone down there with a great big jumbo bag of popcorn and three loaves of bread and the cheapest beer available. We had Blatt's, we had Howenstein, we had Grain Belt, and then we had uh, Hams. And they sponsored the Minnesota Twins for a while, but man, that when that stuff gets warm, it is just nasty. So anyway, we get down to Florida. We don't know what we're going to do. We've got just limited funds. We decide to stay at Tomoka State Park, which is north of Daytona Beach. During the day, we go in and check out this spring break, this magic aura of spring break. Wow! Party! Party! I mean, we're all having a great time. I mean, we finally went in to really experience it on the last day when we were in Florida. We went in, found a motel that had a room. We rented the room for two people. The five of us got in there, two people. And one of my buddies comes running up and he says, Cat Eye, that was my nickname, he goes back. That's another story. Cat Eye, Cat Eye, Minnesota license plates. He had spotted two Minnesota license plates in the parking lot of the hotel that we chose out of all the hotels. Minnesota license plate. What we did next was a little creepy again. We took turns every 15, 20 minutes up on the second level to watch who would come and go from those two cars that had the Minnesota license plate. Maybe we knew cousins. Maybe we'd gone to a wedding dance together. Maybe, maybe we had went shopping at a mall together. Well, sure enough, about two hours into this stalking experience, they yelled out, there's two, there's two. So here's these two poor girls that gone out to the car to get something out of the trunk, and here's these five guys scattering, I mean, just like spiders coming down the wall to intercept them before they could go back to their room or the beach or whatever, talking. So we found out that there were some cousin connections, there were some wedding connections. Oh yeah, we know about Mankato and the Cato Ballroom. And we were introduced to the other six girls. So here's these five knuckleheads and eight girls from Mankato State. And we met 
chatted. There was no chemistry. There was no electricity. I mean, it was, oh, yeah, this ain't going to work. That night, my buddy and I went to down on the main street where everybody's bumping into each other and trying to have a good time. No goals in mind other than to enjoy spring break. So we find this bar called the Rec Bar, W-R-E-C-K. It was patterned after a high-masted sailing ship that had come on shore in, during a storm and is wrecked. So you open up the front door and in you walk, shoulder to shoulder, just packed. And this is back when we had disco lights blinking away up on the very top and it gave you kind of an off-balance kind of a feel. So I was a little off-balance at the time, and um, I got a tap on the shoulder, and there was a young lady with a chair. And she said, would you like to sit here? I had no idea who she was. She was one of the eight girls in from Mankato that we had chatted with, you know, talking over each other, um, at the pool, she said, would you like to sit down? And I said, well, oh, fine, thank you. And this young lady, slim and trim, very tan, had been at Fort Lauderdale, stopped in Daytona Beach just for one night, one day. This girl, random, we sit there, we start talking. She sits down on my lap because there's no place for her to sit. <laughs> and in those days, no cell phone, at all, you've got to scribble the phone number on a bar napkin and hope that it doesn't get wet on your way home, if, if in case you're going to call. I found out she only lived 20 blocks away from me in South Minneapolis. Anyway, we had this party within 10 days of coming back from Florida because we had to show off our sunburn. We had to let people know that we'd been down for spring break. And we invited them. 20 guys showed up, three girls. What you gonna do? Well, one of my buddies comes up. He says, Cat Eye, didn't you get a phone number down in Florida? Well, I run back to my room and I dig through the laundry and I hadn't washed these cutoffs and, and whatever, I found this old crumpled up note and I thought I could read all the numbers and I dialed it up and a young lady answered, hello? And I said, hi, my name is Jim and we met in Florida. And I'm just, you know, that apprehension, is she gonna remember? Is this a, uh, a wrong call? She said, well, yes, I remember you. Well, how are you? We were going like that. And I said, we're having a party over here at 24th and Elliott. Oh, I'm never going in that neighborhood. I said, we'll go down on the sidewalk and escort you into the house if you come over, if you'd like to come over. And oh, by the way, could you bring some friends? <laughs> she brought over nine friends. They were all home from Mankato State College at the time. We uh, met talked, laughed, um, we liked each other immediately, and two years later, we got married. We 
celebrated our 47th wedding anniversary uh, on Valentine's Day this year. We're big fans of spring break. Thank you very much. James Stordahl, an author, actor, and speaker who lives in Ankeny. This hour, we're listening to true stories told in front of a live audience in Iowa City on November 3rd. The theme, a trip I'll never forget. The event is sponsored by Investigate Midwest, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting. Investigate Midwest is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. Coming up after the break, a journalist who recently returned from a trip to Nepal, a couple who expanded their family from six to eight after a trip to Haiti, and the tale of a life-changing hitchhiking trip. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're listening to true stories told in front of a live audience in Iowa City on November 3rd. The theme is A Trip I'll Never Forget. The event is sponsored by Investigate Midwest, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting. Investigate Midwest is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. Our next storyteller is Aaron Jordan, an investigative reporter for the Cedar Rapids Gazette. When I first got the email about an all-expenses-paid trip to Nepal, one of my very good friends suggested perhaps I should check to make sure it wasn't from a Nigerian prince. But I was able to ascertain it was a leg legitimate offer. I had been invited to go to Nepal to be part of a training for journalists from India and Pakistan. The idea was to bring these journalists together in a neutral country and so they could develop cross-border reporting projects. Um, and they were going to be in four categories, business, healthcare, environment, and agriculture. So as an investigative reporter from Iowa, you can imagine which category they selected me for. So most of the people would leap at this opportunity, but I am, I'm kind of a homebody. I, my daughter laughed about this today, but I sometimes structure my weekend around my trip to Fairway. So this was, you know, this was something significant to me. Also, I had never flown out of the country before, and I'm 47. So this was, um, you know, I'd made, you know, day trips to Mexico, I'd even lived briefly in Canada, but this was a big deal to fly more than 20 hours away to the other side of the world for nearly two weeks. But I decided it was too good of an opportunity, and I said yes. As the weeks got closer to the trip, I really was feeling a lot of anxiety. I was having a hard time kind of wrapping my head around the idea of this, uh, this travel, first of all. Um, it was one hour from uh, Cedar Rapids to Chicago. Easy, done that before. But then it was a 14-hour flight from Chicago to Doha, Qatar. And I, you know, and then if that's not enough, once you get off the, the plane in Doha, it's a five-hour flight um, to Kathmandu. And people had said, oh, the time will go fast, you can sleep, you can eat, you can watch movies, you know, it, it'll, it'll be super easy. But I didn't really believe them. 
Still, on September 1st of this year, I boarded the airplane. So if any of you haven't been on an international flight before, don't be embarrassed because as you know, I hadn't either. But um, on the airplane, the seat in front of you has a screen on it and you can, where you can watch movies and um, you know, keep up on, on other things going on. What I realized was that there's also a travel screen that kind of updates you to your progress on the trip. I thought it was a little bit like a treadmill, you know, where you're jogging and the seconds are ticking by and you see this little dot moving around an imaginary track and it seems, you know, like it's going on forever. That's a little bit what this was like. Except I would keep coming back to it in the trip and this little plane, which was obviously outsized to the continents below it, was making its way across and it was, uh, went across the Atlantic Ocean just south of Greenland and then crossing over England and then it seemed to hover over the Persian Gulf forever um, before it landed in Doha. So when I arrived in Kathmandu, eventually, it was 2.30 in the morning. It was dark, I was totally out of it. Um, we, we got to our hotel and I didn't really glimpse much of Nepal until the next day. I'd had a, you know, a few hours of sleep, uh, you know, a shower, and went out to go on a field trip with one of my fellow trainers. So the people they recruited um, to train, they were journalism professors and other, and other journalists, professional journalists. And um, one of the friends I met, um, Sarah Shipley-Hiles, is a um, journalism professor from the University of Missouri. And Sarah suggested we go to a place that she had heard of called the Chandragiri Cable Car. And um, it, it takes you up the, into the foothills um, there of the Himalaya Mountains, and you get to a place that's about 8,000 feet above sea level, where in hopes that you can see Mount Everest. Because for most of you thinking about Nepal, probably growing up, um, Brian mentioned um, John Krakauer and his books. That was my you know, early introduction to Nepal, is just thinking about Mount Everest. So the cab ride to the cable car was like just totally eye-opening to me. Um, for one thing, it was a Sunday, but there were still all these cars on the street. There were cars and buses and just hundreds of mopeds. And everyone is, you know, they're supposed to drive on the left-hand side of the road, but it's like really loosey-goosey, and there's a lot of going back and forth. Um, and then as we're going up into the hills, I was also just um, really blown away by the houses, how they were all, you know, built into the hillside, seemingly on every available inch of space. Um, all different colors, you know, just, you know, two and three-story buildings all over the place. And sometimes there would be piles of bricks, and I would think, well, what's going on there? And then I later realized that a lot of that was still debris from the 2015 earthquake that had struck in Nepal, killing 9,000 people. So, um, you know, this, this cab ride was just amazing, including the fact that we saw monkeys, you know, I, you know just on a bridge as, as we were driving by with people kind of feeding them snacks. So that was just so cool. So we took this cable car up into the kind of the lower part of the mountains, obviously. We didn't get up very high. And, um, it, but when we got off, the air was a little bit thinner, and we walked to the place where you should get, be able to see Mount Everest completely overcast, just a huge bank of clouds. Um, we were going at the tail end of the monsoon season, so you know it was pretty much like overcast the whole time we were there. So we just had to take it on faith that Mount Everest was there somewhere behind the clouds. 
But we did get to see some really cool things on that first sightseeing trip. There was a temple up there um, where Sarah had a, a priest give her a blessing and give her a bindi mark um, on her forehead. And we saw people who were lighting candles. And um, you know there were some statues. There was one statue, it was a gold cow. And people were whispering in the cow's ear. And I assume those were prayers that they were, were making there. So that was a really special first outing. We got to see so many really cool things when we were in Kathmandu. Um, we visited a felting workshop where they make a lot of the felt handicrafts that you see sold around the world from Nepal. We visited an organic farm with my journalists, and that was um, a really cool experience too. There were some moments on the trip where I really felt the distance between there and home. For example, when I had a stomach bug and I realized I had to use a squat toilet and another time where I thought I was eating uh, little pieces of fried fish, but it turns out they were buffalo lung. So, you know, just different things. But there were so many more moments um, where I really felt the commonality and the connection with the people that I met. Um, the journalists from India and Pakistan do what I do as a journalist with the Gazette, but they do it under tremendously difficult circumstances. Um, you know, you have situations where the government is not happy with what you're writing, you don't have financial resources, um, you know, there was the catastrophic flood in Pakistan, and these journalists are still trying to do their reporting. So I made all these great connections with them and also with the um, Nepalis that we met there. At the end of the trip, when it was time to come home, I boarded the plane, and, and I was looking forward to seeing my family and coming home. And I sat there in the, in the seats and um, watched again that screen that showed the little plane, and it showed it moving west this time. It was going across the ocean and um, then you know, kind of through Canada, through Quebec, and down into um, Chicago, where it was going to land. And I realized that the distance that I had to cover with this trip was not the miles or the hours on the plane, but it was the distance that I had to go to in my head to kind of convince myself that I could do this. You know, um, I think we all have moments in our life where there's an experience that like we know we need to do. We know it's the right thing for us, whether it's like taking a job in a different city or like breaking up with somebody or just these things we know we need to do. Um, and I think this trip was kind of like that for me. It was a time where I realized that if I could just say yes and take the steps that needed to get there, that it would be a monumental difference for me. Thank you. Erin Jordan, an investigative reporter for the Cedar Rapids Gazette. She lives in Iowa City. Next up, Amanda and John Romberg of Mount Vernon, Iowa. They are the proprietors of Cause Team, but that's not what this story is about. So we are not professional speakers in any way, but we're going to try. <laughs> um, so this is about a life-changing trip. Yes. And um, I'm going to handle the life and you're going to handle the changing. Is that all right? Sure. So, um, two small town Iowa kids um, meet at the University of Iowa in 1994. We end up dating and get married in 1998. Um, I am just hell bent on um, starting my own company. And so, uh, the first thing I do is take a job with this little startup.com 
we moved to California to work with this dot-com. This was back during the dot-com bubble, if you guys remember that. Um, it was a dot-corpse within like 11 months. <laughs> and sure Amanda's pregnant. So we moved back to Iowa, where we're really at home. And um, a couple of years later, I start a company, and it is hard, right? It's very hard. Yes. And um, we have three more kids over the next, like, 10 years or so-ish. And we're finally doing okay, right? Struggle mm -hmm. early on because the business is really hard. Um, but we finally are starting to make headway. And then around 2012, um, my sister, who is at a, uh, she's a nurse at the University of Iowa, um, says that I should go with her on a mission trip to Haiti, and because I'm, I don't like blood and guts, and I know nothing about. And it was a medical mission. And it was a medical mission, um, that I was not a great fit for this. But and the reason they were going in 2010, Haiti had um, a catastrophic earthquake, if you remember. Um, so a group of uh, doctors at the U um, pooled together. They went down in 2010. I think they tried to go a few different times a year um, and set up a medical clinic in Akaye, Haiti. So Monica, his sister, went in 2010 in, in March. The earthquake was in January. They went in March. Um, she went again in 2011, and then she wanted to go again in 2012. And this time she asks both of us to go, and I'm like, oh, we have four kids at home. Um, you go. <laughs> right. And so I somehow think I can add value to this thing, and I didn't know um, exactly how, but I agreed. And I was going to be the guy carrying around $6,000 in cash in a fanny pack. That was my job. And I had to pay people because I had an, a, an accounting degree. So that was how I was going to um, add value. <laughs> and um, so we, we get there, and um, I, had a, I don't, didn't even know what, know what I was going, what I was expecting, but um, just sort of overwhelmed immediately with um, a sense that um, there was nothing that I could really do for the people of Haiti. They didn't need me to do anything for them. They were fine. They were just poor, but they were fine. Mm -hmm. um, they, they were probably happier than the average American and um, just like fine. Um, other than being poor and needing medical care, they were just sort of fine. Um, so I just kind of like just felt very comfortable with the fact that that I was there just to 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 be there and and to um, help run this clinic and early on like uh, within the first couple of hours these little young Haitian kids were just all around us and they're so curious about us and tugging at your shirt and and um, kind of trying to get your granola bars and that sort of stuff and and um, these two little little guys um, I thought they might be related wasn't sure they looked like they were maybe maybe like um, four and six, maybe six and eight, something like that. But it just caught my eye. Mm -hmm. And I interacted with them for like two days. And then, um, and I just, they just somehow caught my eye, but caught my heart even more. And so I called Amanda. And he tells me, he says, um, this may sound a little strange to you, but um, I, th I think I met our sons. And I, th I found these two boys. I, th I think we should adopt them. And, you know, I had never met them. And I didn't see pictures until he came home. But um, I don't know. There was, just, there was just something about that. We had never even talked about adoption. We had our hands full with four kids. Um, you know, we were just living our life in, in Mount Vernon. And adoption was not something we'd ever, ever talked about. 
But um, I believe with all my heart that it was just the power of the Holy Spirit. Just for whatever reason, he came home, and I, I kind of took over. I said I called probably six or seven adoption agencies just to see, you know, what are our options? Haiti was closed. Haiti was not accepting adoption paperwork, completely closed. Um, the reason they were closed is because they were not a Hague compliant country, which means um, adoptions weren't really ethical. Um, a lot of kids were getting adopted that shouldn't have been adopted, and so they were trying to crack down on Haiti adoptions, which is a really good thing. Um, but even though um, we kept hearing the word no, no, no adoptions right now, no, you can't adopt from Haiti, for whatever reason, I started completing our adoption dossier. When I was finished, I had about a 20-pound pack of paper. Um, you just have a checklist, and it usually takes about six months to get an adoption dossier together. Um, I called a home study company, and she said, well, I mean, we could, we could start it, but, you know, Haiti's not accepting adoption paperwork right now. And I did it anyway. <laughs> I, I, we had to have um, certified copies of marriage license, of birth certificates of not only he and I, but of our children. Um, we had to schedule an appointment with a psychologist and have them write a letter, get it certified, notified sent in. We had to meet with our local police department. They had to write a letter on our behalf, notarize it. I did all of this even though like everyone was telling me an adoption was impossible. And um, I just kept working and um, April, and it kind of slowed down. Um, I worked on it that whole fall and then I kind of slowed down and these adoption agencies I think were um, they knew that I'd been calling, I'd been calling and calling and calling and nope, still Still not open, Haiti's not open. Um, April 1st of 2013, that was this next year, John's dad passed away. And it was a couple days later, and uh, a lady from All Blessings International in Kentucky called and said, hey, um, we have a small window, and there is a, a Haitian man who has an agency in, in Port-au-Prince, his agency's New Life Link, He's willing to help you, um, but you gotta work fast and you gotta get your dossier done really fast. And I'm like, well, I already have almost all of it done. Um, I talked to this Haitian man on the phone and he has very broken English, very thick accent. Um, and he's telling me everything I need to do and I need to do it right now and I need to send $10,000 to Boston and blah, blah, blah. And I get off the phone and I'm like, send $10,000 to Boston? We don't have $10,000 and is this a scam? Like, spoiler alert. It was not a scam, but we will hear the rest of the story about how a trip to Haiti inspired Amanda and John Romberg of Mount Vernon to adopt two of their sons against all odds after this break. This hour, we're listening to true stories told in front of a live audience in Iowa City on November 3rd. The theme is A Trip I'll Never Forget. The event is sponsored by Investigate Midwest, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting. Investigate Midwest is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. Later on, a life-changing hitchhiking journey that took a surprising detour. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're listening to true stories told in front of a live audience in Iowa City on November 3rd. The theme is A Trip I'll Never Forget. The event is sponsored by Investigate Midwest, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting. Before the break, we heard the first part of a story told by Amanda and John Romberg of Mount Vernon. John participated in a medical mission trip to Haiti, and while he was there, he formed a bond with two young boys who didn't have a family. He and Amanda already had four biological children, but they decided that they would adopt those boys, making their family of eight complete. The only problem was that international adoptions from Haiti had been frozen. Even though it didn't seem like adoption would be possible, Amanda completed their adoption dossier and then was told there was a brief window of opportunity. And to get things started, she needed to send $10,000 to someone in Boston. I just knew for sure that this is what we were supposed to do, but $10,000, send it to Boston? Why Boston? Well, he had a son that lived in Boston, and he was, you know, in charge of collecting the money for the agency. And because John's dad had just passed away, um, he had one liquid account that had $80,000 in it. Everything else was tied up in a trust. There's eight siblings in his family, and each child got $10,000. And On the nose. On the nose. And I'm like, I just feel like this is what we're supposed to do. So I sent $10,000 to Boston. (laughs) And um, in June of 2013, we flew to Haiti to meet with this adoption representative. I had my paperwork. I was guarding it with my life. Um, I was so scared to leave, even go to the bathroom without it. We just kind of held tight. And so we get to Haiti, and um, we are in a courtroom um (laughs) and the the clerk the clerk the judge comes in and he wants us to sign a document and it was a white spiral brown notebook that was blank they gave it to us and said sign your names like what are we what are we signing we just had to sign our names on that blank piece of paper that was our appearance in court it was just the most bizarre thing um so i had never been to haiti i was a nervous wreck Um, But we did it, we signed the adoption papers, we head to the orphanage where the boys were living, and um, you know, they just, I I will never forget opening that door to the orphanage, and they had been waiting for us because they knew we were coming, and they knew him, they didn't know me, and so I, I just hear footsteps, John, 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 and they just tackle him, and you know, I'm just kinda sitting there like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're really doing this. Um, but that little Jackson, you know, he, he took my hand and kind of held me or took me around and gave me the tour and did not let go of my hand like the rest of that trip. But in, so that was 2012 was the first trip, 2013 was the second trip, and then 2016 they finally came home. Yeah. It just took a the long time. The adoption timeline was excruciating for everybody in the, the people that suffered the most were the boys for sure, just waiting in a, uh, uh, Haitian orphanage. Um, it was just incredibly sad. We, we took 17 total trips to see them during that four-year period. 
um, an adoption that went on for a very long time, but the boys are now here. Yep, Nelson's um, a sophomore at Kirkwood, and Jackson's a senior in high school, and... And they're doing great. So just, it all worked out. Yes. So that's Thank our you. story. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I think it is time for our next storyteller. And our next storyteller is Brian Morelli who lives here in Iowa City and leads marketing and communications efforts for Iowa Technology Institute. And he is going to tell us about a trip to Alaska that ended in Iowa. Brian, welcome. Does anyone know where the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont is? Just kind of throw, this is my trivia question for the group. Um, so my story starts in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont in 1999. And I was at a reggae festival. I was, my plan was to hitchhike to Alaska. And so I'd ended up at this reggae festival and I was gonna try to find a ride to uh, as far west as I could go and then hitchhike north. The last day of this festival, I wake up after the concert, wake up, all my stuff had been stolen. And uh, all I had, I had maybe $100 in my pocket. I had a tent that I had slept in and the clothes I was uh, slept in. Um, and so I, you know, you could call it stu stupidity, uh, you could call it stubbornness, being naive, uh, probably a combination of all three, but there was also some determination, like this is something I really wanted to do and I was not gonna, you know, be deterred. And so I, I said, you know what, I'm going, I don't care. I'm just gonna make, I'm just gonna see what happens. And so I did. Um, so maybe I just wanna give a little bit of background um, to sort of how I got to that point. And uh, I grew up in New Hampshire in a little town. It's actually the third biggest city in uh, New Hampshire, Nashua. It's across the border from Lowell, which is where Jack Kerouac grew up, or was from. And so I just kind of fell in love with, with his stories and just kind of like this idea of this sort of nomadic life of travel and adventure and writing. And, and so, you know, as I'm getting ready for college, you know, the only thing, you know, you start thinking about, like, what do I want to do? Like, that was, like, the one idea that sort of resonated. Like, how do I make that kind of life my life? And so uh, I picked a college uh, in northeast, or, or sorry, in uh, the Pacific Northwest, in Washington State, basically so I could take this epic road trip out there. So I ended up out in the, the Northwest, and um, uh, about a, a semester in, uh, I decided to uh, take a break from college and do this month-long train trip, basically kind of feeding this kind of travel bug. And uh, got back to school, and it's not that I wasn't doing well in school, I was doing okay, and so I loved being out there. And uh, I, I decided, you know what, like, I am not ready to be in school, I don't know what I wanna do, you know, I don't wanna, you know, I'm not ready to make choices now that are gonna affect me for the rest of my life in terms of careers and things like that. And so I, I said, I'm gonna take a break and travel. And so I, I did, and it wasn't the most popular decision with people I cared about, you know, family, friends, like, you're gonna regret this forever, right? And it's like, well, I guess we'll see. And so, uh, so the next year, uh, I planned this, this epic road trip, and I went on a 14,000 mile, four month road trip, and ended up in Alaska. I forgot to mention, there was a, another kind of key writer that sort of influenced me, and that was uh, 
uh, the, the writer of Into the Wild, Jack Krakauer. And so he told the story of uh, this guy who, who kind of, he had already graduated school, burns all his money, ditches his car, and just kind of sets off and see what the world has to offer. And it didn't work out so well for him. He died in Alaska and in a school bus. Um, but for me, it was like, I, I read the book and I just thought about all these experiences he had and the people he met. And um, I thought, there's something there. Like that's, you know, maybe it didn't work out. Like why, you know, maybe I'll someday wind up in Alaska and uh, go to the bus and just maybe pay a little tribute to him and just kind of think about like what, what could his life have been like if not for these fatal mistakes he made. And so that's kind of some of the, the thinking into why I had this idea of going on this, this hitchhiking adventure to Alaska. And so I'm at the festival, got nothing, kind of scrounged around, tried to found like a, someone had left a duffel bag. So I kind of put my butt, uh, tent in the duffel bag and found a ride. First ride was only to New York, so not, I was kind of thinking maybe I'd get like, you know, a few safes over, but take what you can get. And the next few days are just kind of a grind of like a lot of sitting around, standing around the road, thumb out, trying to, you know, hope someone will pull over. Um, meet a lot of interesting people. Uh, there's this guy uh, from some kind of religious cult maybe. I don't really know that was uh, picked me up and gave me for a ride for, you know, a few hours. There was a trucker in Oklahoma City who had a tire blow out and we wound up at a truck stop delivery guy who bought us some 40s at 7 a.m. and it's like well hey I'm not working today so uh, but he let me pick, pick through fruit in his back uh, back of his truck and just kind of stock up because you know I wasn't eating a whole lot in those days um, but it, you know it, like there's a lot of good people out there right and you got to kind of trust and, and sort of see um, you know see see what the world brings you and, and sort of make choices as as you encounter those. Um, so, but not everyone's good, right? And uh, I did find, uh, find out about some folks like that when I was, uh, I think, New York into Ohio. I got picked up by this ride that um, they just, they, they were just kinda, kinda scuzzy looking. They were in just kind of some old jalopy and not that that's sort of what tipped it off is more like what they were talking about. Like their stories kept changing and they were like, oh, you're trying to go west, and first they were just going to go to Michigan, and then they were going to go to Colorado, and then to, to California, and they, you know, they were like bounty hunters, and strippers, and boxers, and weed farmers, and just kind of like, something's not adding up. I'm in the wrong ride. And so they were uh, spare changing. Um, they didn't have any money, apparently, and I didn't have a whole lot of money, so they were spare changing for gas, and they pulled over, uh, and and started driving on local highways um, and someone must have kind of got spooked, called the cops, and sort of to the rescue comes the Bryan, Ohio police, right? So Bryan's apparently stick together. Um, and so I, I ended up in jail in Bryan, Ohio. Uh, I was like, hey, I uh, don't know these guys. I'm hitchhiking across the country. Like, let's like keep some distance. So a few hours later, they kept me in the cell. They didn't they, they, I think they thought I was like smuggling drugs, which I wasn't, uh, but they, they kicked me out at like 8 p.m. So I uh, had to kind of figure out plans for that night in the middle of the, middle of the dark. Um, flash forward a couple days, 
and I'm basically at the worst spot you could imagine for a hitchhiker. I'm at the I-80-380 interchange. Um, it's kind of in the middle of no man's land. I had no idea, right? I, I, I think I'd passed through Iowa before, but really was not on the radar for me. Um, and so I basically I have my sign. I have like this cardboard sign, just like you might see in like, you know, like a TV or just, you might imagine like I-80 West, you know, like, so have my sign, cardboard sign sticking out. I'm, I'm walking and before I get to where 380 reconnects with 80, uh, this Mercury Sable, tan Mercury Sable pulls over and uh, there's like a few car lanes ahead so I like hustle up to the car and uh, I look inside and there's two young ladies like, you know, I heard, I'm like 21 years old and there's probably two, you know, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 year olds. I'm like, what luck, right? Like, I mean, this is like, what else do you ask for? And so they, uh, they're like, hey, you want to ride? We're going to Des Moines. Again, not a far ride, but of course, I jump in, take it, take the ride, start feeding me Hershey bars and animal crackers, and just like a really easy conversation. Just um, we had kind of had some connections uh, just in terms of interests. And so w one of them, the driver, Sarah, uh, says, you know, do you want to come over for dinner? I'm like, well, I mean, I, I don't have any other plans, so like, yeah, uh, that sounds like a great idea. And, uh, and so we, we go over. So it turns out it was her dad's birthday and it has all sorts of folks around, like all family, friends, her sister's friends were around and I mean, we were eating tacos and, um, and I mean, it was great. Like I, she told them that she had met me on Fish Tour because that was one of the things we connected over. We had both uh, traveled around with the band Fish. It's a, of a hippie touring band, uh, and and I don't know if they believed it, um, but they were still extremely you know kind. It was like a really nice evening that night. We went out to Sailorville Lake and um, hiked around, just kind of chatted, and um, just had a really nice evening. Invited, was like, hey, it's super late. You don't want to leave now. Do you just want to stay over? So of course I took up that offer, and uh, still planning the whole time. Like, all right, I'm going to get dropped off and continue on my way to Alaska. And the next day, we just kind of hung around for the morning, chatted. Um, and uh, eventually, we, we was like, all right, you know, probably kind of drop me off. And so we start, she drove me, I think, kind of as far west. They were in Ankeny. And so she drove me out to like West Des Moines, maybe a little further to, uh, you know, to basically as far as she could go. And just pulled over, hop out, grab my stuff. and. And then we were kind of standing there and just kind of like, wow, this is really it, you know? Like, this is like just this really cool moment um, that we've had and like just how random, you know? Like how random life is that we connect, to have this weird connection, like we have no reason to know each other. And, and so all of a sudden, like just, you know, I think uh, the speaker before was kind of talking about like chemistry, like all of a sudden it was like, man, is there something here? And, and uh, you know, I just kind of, thinking like, man, my plan for the past year has been to go back to Alaska and, you know, what a great story that would be if I hitchhiked to Alaska and, you know, maybe I was write a book or whatever, you know, and like, um, but, you know, I thought like, well, what, what is really, why, why do I need to get there? What am I, what am I expecting to find? And so I kind of 
I just asked Sarah, I said, uh, you know, what if I stayed? And, uh, you know, we could like work together and save some money. Um, we could, uh, you know, maybe go out after, you know, save up enough money and go on a road trip. And like, who knows, we'll go out west, go on fish tour, who knows what we'll do. Like, we, and uh, to my surprise, she was like, kind of into it. I was like, really? So, so I stayed. And um, I camped out for a few weeks in a cornfield uh, until like one night I woke up in, in pouring rain and I drenched, was drenched because I didn't set up my tent. Uh, and so her family took me in very kindly. And uh, just last June, we celebrated our 20 year anniversary. Um, so I, th I think I was, it's just uh, something that strikes me about this story is like, you know, you have these plans. You're like, hey, this is what I need to do. This is what people are telling me to do. And um, just kind of like trusting your instincts, knowing when to break free from the plan and, and like kind of go your own way. Like, um, and you know, it turned out that, you know, the dream was amazing. Like hitchhike to Alaska, but reality was, uh, had a lot more for me. So thank you. Brian Morelli of Iowa City. We have been listening to true stories told in front of a live audience in Iowa City on November 3rd. The event was sponsored by Investigate Midwest, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting, and organized by the Foundations of Event Management class at the University of Iowa. Thank you to audio engineer Jim Davies and producer Danny Gear. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Thank you.